Good morning. You can find your seats. It's Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. It's good to see everyone this morning. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word again. Exodus 23, we'll be starting in verse 10 this morning. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the, the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyards and with your olive orchards. Six days you shall do your work, but the seventh day shall be the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I have commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, uh, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The beast of the first fruits, or the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray this morning. Dear Lord, God, our our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you, Lord, with this text, Lord, this portion of scripture in the Old Testament, uh, the law, Lord, uh, uh, commanding these festivals and these ceremonies, Lord, these events that reminded Israel of their salvation, Lord. God, but they also pointed Israel forward to a greater salvation, God. I pray this morning as we walk through this passage that we understand not just your purpose for these festivals, Lord, but, but how the Old and New Testament, Lord, are tied together and how you prepared the way for Jesus to come with the law, Lord, with these festivals that pointed to him, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us this morning, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Today, obviously, we're in Exodus 23. We're going to continue to walk through the law, but this is a very appropriate passage this morning as it uh, is the holiday season because we're going to be looking at a number of different festivals that the Israelites celebrated that they were commanded to celebrate, to observe by the Lord within the law. These festivals, um, in a few different ways, are, are very similar uh, to the festivals that, that we celebrate or the uh, holidays that we celebrate, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and even Easter or Resurrection Sunday. 
And so again, this is appropriate uh, text to be in this morning. I have three parts of the sermon, three parts of the um, passage this morning. Uh, the, the three parts of the sermon is this, the Sabbath year. Uh, the second part is the three annual feasts. So we'll be looking at the Sabbath year, the three annual feasts in this passage, and then the anticipation of Jesus and the gospel that we see within this passage. So let's get into it. We have a lot to cover this morning. There's going to be a lot of information, just understanding what's going on. So the first point, the first part of the sermon this morning is the Sabbath year. If you would, again, look at Exodus 23, verse 10. It says this, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyards and with your olive orchard. Now, it's pretty clear just with reading this first part of the text that this event is connected to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So I think it's good if we would start with the fourth commandment and, and remind ourselves what was commanded at Mount Sinai. And we're going to be jumping around in the, the Old Testament a lot this morning. So if you would turn real quick to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. We'll be back in Exodus 23. But let's look at the fourth commandment, verse 8. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now we went over this command in uh, the summer and, and we learned that the emphasis of this command is rest. Six days the Israelites were to work. The seventh day they were to rest. You shall not do any work. The last day of the week, which is Saturday, the Israelites were to rest. Therefore, the Sabbath was graciously given to the people of God, to the Israelites, as a day to get them ready for the next week, right? to rejuvenate, to restore, to refresh, to rest the body, the mind, the spirit, and the soul. Rest is at the heart of the fourth commandment, and I think we see that very clearly in the command itself. But if you would turn back to Exodus 23, verse 12, we see the commandment restated in verse 12. It says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Again, that's the heart of the command, the fourth commandment, is rest that and here's the reason that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Israel, in other words, was commanded by God to rest that they may be refreshed. And we see the same principle in verses 10 and 11. If you would look at verse 10, Exodus 23, verse 10 says this, For six years... You shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow. In other words, every seventh day Israel was to give all their workers and they themselves, they were to rest every seventh year. Israel was to give the land rest. Now, we 
are connected to farming, being close to the uh, Sam Joaquin Valley here, um, connected to agriculture. So most of us know it's good agricultural practice to let land rest. This is why farmers rotate their crops. It gives rest to the land. But listen to verse 11. This is the reason why God says to let the land rest. Verse 11 says, The seventh year you shall let it rest and lay fallow that, here's the reason, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. In other words, on the seventh year, Israel is to let their fields grow wild and invite the poor to eat what grows, just what grows wild, and after that, wild animals may come and eat freely in the land. Now, this accomplished a couple of things. It restored the land. It replenished the, the natural environment. That's why the uh, wild animals were allowed to come and eat. Again, it was good agricultural practice for the land itself, and it also feed the poor for a whole year. But there's more to this than just that. This year, the Sabbath year, reminded the Israelites that they were dependent on God. Even the other six years, they were dependent on God. If you would, now turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Again, we're going to be going back and forth in Scripture. I'd put something at Exodus 23. But we're going to be in Leviticus a lot. So if you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. Again, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Right? This is anticipating when Israelites enter into the promised land. Right? Verse 3, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year... There shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. In other words, don't work the land. Let it rest. Let it just grow wild. Verse 6. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourselves and for your male and female slaves and for your hired workers and the sojourner who lives with, with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land and its yield shall be for food. In other words, you're going to have to trust me this seventh year as the, the land grows wild, that there will be enough food for everyone. Therefore, the seventh year was a reminder to the Israelites of their dependence on God when it came to harvesting, when it came to growing their food. So Israel was commanded to rest. They were commanded to rest on the seventh day, which gave a rhythm to the week of, of rest on the seventh day. And they were commanded to, to rest the land on the seventh year. Right? That the land would, um, they would let the land rest, reminding Israel of their dependence on God. And this brings us 
to the second part of the sermon. If you would turn back to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. So again, the first part of our text this morning, we see the, the Sabbath year, right, which really gave a rhythm to the decade, when you think about that. But the second part of the text this morning that, that is commanded by God is three annual feasts that were to be celebrated by Israel. Again, look at verse 14. Exodus 23, verse 14 says this. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Again, three annual feasts. This gave a rhythm to the year, kind of like our holidays give a rhythm to the year. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday. All three of these feasts, we're going to find out, are pilgrimage feasts, right? Festivals, meaning once a year, the Israelites were to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate these three annual feasts. And the three annual feasts that we see in this passage are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. So let's kind of go through each one of these and look at... um, what these festivals celebrated and, and um, accomplished as God commanded each one of these. The first one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This took place in springtime, and as we've learned, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, is connected to the Passover. Right? Look at verse 15, it says this, You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, For in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Again, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are connected. In fact, when you go through the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see it called Passover. Sometimes you'll see it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're two different things that are connected, but they're synonymous with each other. They're connected. They both reminded Israel of their salvation from Egypt. During the Exodus, the Israelites took a lamb. We went through this. They sacrificed this lamb. The lamb was called the Passover lamb because they would take the blood of this lamb and paint it on their doorposts, the Israelites. And when the death angel came into the land of, of Egypt, it passed over every house that had the blood on the doorposts. That's why the lamb was called the Passover lamb. Therefore, every year the Israelites were to, commanded by God to celebrate this event by sacrificing a lamb and celebrating a Passover feast. Again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, was connected to the Passover. It took place immediately after the Passover feast. And there's a reason for that. If you would, now turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. Exodus 12, verse 29. I want to show you why the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were connected to each other. Verse 29 says this, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. We know that this is the tenth plague, the the final plague that that finally uh, had Egypt throw Israel out of the land. Verse 30 says this, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. But remember, 
the Israelites were saved from this plague because they painted the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. And the death angel passed over the Israelites, yet the Egyptians were not spared. Look at verse 31. It says this, Then he, that's Pharaoh, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go um, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your your herds and as you have said, and, and be gone and bless me also. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They had enough with all the plagues and and they sent them out quickly in haste. So quickly, verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. Now, there's a couple ways you can leaven bread, but in antiquity, the main way you would leaven bread was to let it sit out over a period of time. The Israelites were driven out so quickly by the Egyptians, they didn't have time to leaven their bread. Again, verse 34 says, So the people took their dough before it was leavened. They, they left in haste. They were, they were uh, sent out of the land in haste. Well, now look at Exodus 13, verse 3. Exodus 13, verse 3. It says this, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day. Don't forget this day. Right? Remember this day that you were sent out of Egypt. Again, our holidays remind us. Right? Christmas reminds us the birth of our Savior of Jesus. Uh, resurrection Sunday reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus after his death. Well, the Israelites were to remember their salvation from Egypt. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery... For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Verse 8. You shall tell your son... On that day. In other words, these festivals were to to remind not just the Israelites, but to pass down the story to the next generation so that they would know about the great salvation from Egypt. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. In other words, every year the Israelites were to travel, right, the pilgrimage ceremony festival, they were to travel to Jerusalem, celebrate Passover, then eat unleavened bread for seven days, and at the end they would have a feast, a joy filled celebration, remembering God's salvation in the Exodus. Now, if you would, turn back to Exodus 23, verse 16. Exodus 23, verse 16. Again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is the first festival in our passage that 
was required, the Israelites were required to celebrate this festival. The second festival was the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. Now, most of us are probably familiar with Passover and the Feast of Unlevered Bread. If you've been going through the Exodus series, this is nothing new. But the Feast of Harvest may be something that's new to you. Look at verse 16. It says this. You shall keep the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits. Let me stop there. That's an important word. First fruits. Just keep that in mind. Of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sown, sow in the field. Now, the Feast of Harvest happened after Passover, right? Passover happened in the Feast of Unleavened Bread in springtime. The Feast of Harvest happened early summer. So if you would, turn to Leviticus 23. We're going to be in Leviticus 23 and back to Exodus 23, back and forth. Leviticus 23, verse 9. Again, this morning we're getting a lot of information, but it's all, I'm hoping, going to come together at the end of this sermon this morning. So stick with me. Starting in verse 9, Leviticus 23, verse 9. And if you have your word, I'd love for you to open there so you can see this. Right? I know most of us read through Leviticus in our yearly, long Bible plan, and we have no idea what we're reading. Well, this is your chance to kind of understand what's going on here and why it's significant. Why it's significant to the New Testament, as we will see. Exodus 23, or Leviticus 23, verse 9, says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that, that I give you and reap its harvest, again, this is anticipating them getting into the promised land, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits, there's that word again, the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, this is referring to wheat. I know it says first fruits, so we think fruits, but this is referring to the wheat harvest. Right? It's called the harvest or the fest or the feast of harvest because the first sheaf of barley that was harvested you were to take to the priest. And look at verse eleven. And he shall wave this sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. And listen to this. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now that's interesting, because what day is that? What's the day after the Sabbath, which is Saturday, the day after Saturday is Sunday. Now it's just rare to have something in the Old Testament that's not on the Sabbath. But this festival, right, you bring it on the Sabbath, they wave it the next day, which is a Sunday. The first fruits, right, of the harvest. Right? On that Sunday, the priest will wave the sheaf of barley before the Lord, acknowledging that what would come after came from the Lord, the harvest that was to come. Remember, this is the beginning of the harvest. The sheaf was just the first fruits of the harvest that's about to come. It's why this is sometimes called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, this festival has so many different names, right? The Feast of Harvest we see in Exodus 23. It was sometimes called the Feast of First Fruits. But this wasn't the end of the festival. Look at verse 15 now. You shall count seven full weeks. Now, let me stop here again. This feast has so many different names. Sometimes this feast was called the Feast of Weeks, because you would count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, which was a Sunday, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the uh, uh, wave offering. Okay, you would count seven full weeks after. 
bringing the first fruits, right? Verse 16, you should count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, that's seven weeks, again, the day after the seventh week, then you shall pre- uh, present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Now, let me just do the math, and again, we have a lot of engineers in our church, so see if I can get some yeses. So, right, seven weeks, right, seven times seven is what? 49, right? right? So the day after would be 50, which would be a Sunday, okay? Therefore, you would wait for a day after the seventh week, right, 50 days, to present the grain offering to the Lord. Therefore, on the 50th day, you would travel to Jerusalem, or you'd be in Jerusalem on the 50th day, and celebrate this feast. And look at verse 17. It says this, you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. Now remember, 50 days earlier, you only had the first fruits of the harvest. A few barley sheaves, not much. 50 days later, Israel was to bring the abundance, from the abundance of the harvest, to celebrate what God was doing that year in the harvest. Look at verse 20. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy uh, convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. In other words, rest. Not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. This was a joy-filled celebration, a way of thanking God for the harvest that was about to come. Now let me point out one more thing before we get to the third festival that we're looking at this morning. Because you waited 50 days to celebrate this festival in the New Testament, this festival was often called Pentecost. Pentecost is just the Greek word for 50 this brings us to our last festival. If you would turn back now to Exodus 23, we'll be right back in Ex- Leviticus 23 in a second. But turn back to Exodus 23. Again, I'd like you to see this. So, in The third festival, it's at the end of verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. It just says this. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Now this feast, the feast of ingathering, took place after the harvest, right? fall or autumn time. Now, this festival is somewhat similar to our Thanksgiving, what we just celebrated. Right? The Israelites were thanking God for his provision for the harvest of this that year. As the last harvest comes in, when you're done with that, then you would celebrate this festival, the Feast of Ingathering. Now, let me just get the time periods because this is important. Pentecost happened, right, at the beginning of the harvest, anticipating the harvest that was about to come. In other words, looking forward to what God was about to provide, thanking him, recognizing it it was his grace that they would have a harvest at all. The Feast of Ingathering happened at the end of the harvest, thanking God for his provision, what he did provide. But thankfulness for the harvest wasn't the only purpose of this festival. Like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this feast pointed Israel back 
to their salvation in the Exodus. Again, turn to Leviticus 23 again. Leviticus 23, verse 41. We're in Leviticus because we get a further explanation and law surrounding these feasts. Verse 41, again, God has commanded Israel to celebrate these things. Verse 41 starts by saying, you shall celebrate it. This is the Feast of Ingathering. Again, verse 41, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. Let me just stop there. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, but it goes on for seven whole days. Imagine all the turkey that you would be eating for seven days. It is a statue forever throughout your generation. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Again, a seven-day-long festival, feast. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. This is why this feast is sometimes called the Feast of Booths. Now, booths, this word just means little hunts or probably in today's vocabulary, tents. They would make these man-made little huts that they would live in temporarily. In other words, Israelites would camp. I really like this. They would camp for seven days, celebrating, feasting for a whole week. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Look at verse 43. That your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. This was a way not only of thanking God for his provision of the, the harvest that year, but reminding the Israelites that after their salvation in Egypt, they dwelt in the wilderness. They dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years, and God provided for them that entire time. Therefore, this festival reminded Israel of their salvation. And it was a joy-filled festival. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to Deuteronomy 16.13. This is what it says. This is God speaking to Moses to speak to the Israelites. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, verse 14, you shall rejoice. I just want to stop there. God is commanding the Israelites to rejoice, to be joy-filled, to celebrate joyfully. I just want to stop there because, again, there's this disconnect between the Old and New Testament for a lot of Christians. Like the, the New Testament God is this God of love, gentle, right, graceful. The, the Old Testament God is this, like, grumpy God that is wrathful. But I, the, the reason people think that, they just don't understand their Old Testament well enough. This is God commanding the Israelites to rejoice, to have a joy-filled ceremony and festival for seven full days. See the same command in the New Testament, rejoice in the Lord always. We are to be joy-filled people. The Israelites were to be a joy-filled people. Again, verse 14, you shall rejoice in your feast. 
You and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the the widow who are within your town. For seven days, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands that you will be altogether joy-filled. That's the Old Testament. That's the law. The law is commanding Israel to be joy-filled. I just love that. Seven-day-long joy-filled celebration commanded by God. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. Again, we see three feasts, three festivals that the Israelites were commanded to celebrate. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This happened in springtime, so just kind of get that thought. It happened in springtime. It was connected to Passover. Passover started the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Those two things are intimately connected. Seven weeks later, you have the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. This was early summer. The beginning of the harvest, 50 days after uh, the Passover. In the New Testament, we call it Pentecost, or it was called Pentecost, the Greek word for 50. And finally, there was the Feast of Ingathering. This happened after the harvest, right? Looking back, right? This happened fall, autumn. It was seven days camping in booths and like tents, man-made little huts, remembering how God provided in the wilderness. Now, Exodus 23 ends with some regulations surrounding these feasts, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I really want to get to my last point this morning and spend some time there. But let's go through them because I don't want to skip over them. Look at verse 17. It says this, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. In other words, all three of these feasts were pilgrimage feasts. At the heads of the household, the, the, all your males were to make an appearance before God. They would travel, and they were to travel with their families. It was just the responsibility of the head of the household, the males, to make sure everyone got there to celebrate these feasts. Verse 18 says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. They were to offer the fat of the the animals to the Lord that day, not till the morning. Verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, not the second best, but the best. And finally, at the end of verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, that's an interesting command. It's confused many. In fact, it's one of those passages that a lot of people like to go to and say, look, these are just random laws. They don't make any sense. It's actually pretty simple when you put it in its context. Boiling a young animal in its mother's milk was a pagan practice. We have evidence of this. It was a pagan practice, and the Israelites were not to mix paganism in their worship. We've seen that over and over and over again in the book of Exodus. I mean, just think about it for a second, because I think you see the paganism in it, right? A mother's milk in the, in the scriptures, but just in general, right, in reality, in, in when you think about it, a mother's milk is a symbol of life. A mother's milk is, is what gives life to a, a newborn, to a baby, to a baby animal, right? Therefore, Israel was not to mix death and life. 
And we talked about holiness. One of the things holiness is, is, is putting things in its proper place, separating what should be separated. Life and death are to be separated. Therefore, when you boil a young animal in its mother's milk, you're mixing life and death. This was a pagan practice that the Israelites were to be separate from. So these are a few just regulations at the end uh, of our passage this morning. But I want to get into our last point. The last point is the anticipation of Jesus and the gospel. For sure, all these ceremonies and festivals pointed Israel backwards to God's grace. And we see that in the Old Testament. It's very clear. The Sabbath, right, the Sabbath year and the Sabbath day reminded Israel of, of creation God's grace in creation, right? That God worked seven or six days, that God commanded man to work even before the fall, right? Work wasn't caused by the fall. Hard work was caused by the fall, but work is a good thing, that man is to work six days and rest on the seventh because God rested on the seventh. But we even see that, that God gave man stewardship and, and dominion over what? The land, and they were to take care of the land, right? This was a grace of God. Again, the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year pointed Israel back to God's grace in creation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread we talked about reminded Israel of the Exodus and the salvation from Egypt and slavery. The Feast of Ingathering reminded Israel of God's provision in the wilderness as they dwelt in booths remembering and reminding each other that God provided for 40 years in the wilderness before they entered in to the promised land. So all these festivals and feasts and celebrations pointed Israel backwards to God's grace, but they also pointed Israel forward. They anticipated Jesus and the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, let's start with the Sabbath. The Sabbath and the Sabbath year, what are they primarily about? Rest. Rest from work. Well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is promising rest here for those who are heavy laden, for those that have heavy burdens on their back. Listen, legalism is burdensome. Legalism is burdensome. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor through works, through, through being good, through doing good things, through, through keeping the law. And Jesus was talking to a people that, that had a heavy burdens on them because it was a legalistic culture. It's burdensome because it's an impossible task. Romans 3.20 says, For by works, good works, doing good things, for by works of the law, no human being can be justified in his sight. What Jesus is offering in Matthew 11 is rest. It's rest from trying to earn salvation. It's, it's rest only found in God's grace, a free gift by God. Rest in God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
true salvation is found in grace alone, through faith alone. It's only when we rest, when we rest from trying to earn our salvation and trust in Jesus that we truly find salvation. And listen, this is exactly, exactly what the Sabbath day pointed to. It's exactly what the Sabbath year pointed Israel to. The Sabbath was about rest, and it pointed Israel forward. It prepared Israel for Jesus, where there would be rest found in God's grace. Hebrews 4.9 says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Therefore, the greatest purpose of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was to point God's people, Israel, forward to the rest that they would find in their Savior, Jesus. But this leads to a question, and it's a question that we find often in the Old Testament. It leads to a question, how, how could Jesus offer rest? How could Jesus offer rest when, when God's people and, and man in general just deserves God's wrath? Well, this is where the Passover comes in. Remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is in our passage this morning, is connected to the Passover. It reminded Israel of their salvation when, when they took the, the Passover lamb, they sacrificed it, and they painted its blood on the doorpost, and God's wrath passed over the Israelites, their households, and they received God's grace instead. In other words, the Passover lamb took the punishment that the Israelite family owed. It atoned for their sins, and therefore God's wrath passed over them. Well, this didn't just point back to the Exodus. This pointed Israel forward to Jesus. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming to him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb prepared Israel for Jesus. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, or 5, verse 7. It says this, Cleanse out the old leaven. What is that? That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, right? These two feasts are connected. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, right? He took the punishment, right? That's the gospel, that he took the punishment we deserved. Listen, verse 8. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, right? Our old sinful self, who we were before we were saved, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Philip Ryken writes about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says this, Jesus is our Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. Now, we need to make a clean sweep, getting rid of all our wicked ways and living in true holiness. The Feast of Unleavened Bread gives us a picture of what it means to be sanctified in Christ. In other words, 
and pointed Israel forward, the Feast of Unleaded Bread, and pointed Israel forward to the gospel. The Passover, the Feast of Unleaded Bread, pointed Israel forward to the gospel and the sanctification that would be the result of a new life. But this was not the only feast that pointed Israel forward to Jesus and the gospel. What happened right after the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread? What's the next feast in the calendar after Passover? In fact, the feast that you would start counting the days, right, to the next time you would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Again, another pilgrimage festival. Jews from all over would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. The next feast was called the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me just remind you how Pentecost was celebrated. When the first fruits, again, important word, the first fruits of the wheat harvest came in, you would take those few, very few barley sheaves, right, small in number, you would take them to the priest, and he would wave them in front of the Lord. This anticipated God's grace, a large harvest that was about to come. And what day did he wave those first fruits in front of the Lord? The day after the Sabbath, which was Sunday. Well, look at Acts 2. Acts 2. Verse 1 says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, who is they? How many people were there? Well, it says in Acts 1.15, there's about 120 people. That's a, that's a small group of people. Right? Well, guess what? The first fruits of a great harvest. It was about to come. But more importantly than that, Jesus himself was the first fruits. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Now for a Jew, they would have automatically heard that and thought of the feast of harvest or the feast of first fruits. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Well, what day was Jesus raised from the dead? Sunday. And what happened seven weeks after that Sunday? Seven weeks and one day would be Pentecost, right? From that Saturday, Sunday, seven weeks, Pentecost. Look at Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, about 120 of Jesus' disciples at this point, a small group of people. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devoted men from every nation under heaven. Why? It was a pilgrimage feast. You don't think God prepared this perfectly with this feast that, that Jews from, from every nation, it used to be Jews from Israel, but they got so spread out, Jews from every nation came Every nation from under heaven came 
to Jerusalem. Let me just say this. I'm guessing the majority of them were there 50 days earlier to see the Passover where Jesus was crucified and raised. God was preparing a people. Verse 5. Now there are men, then there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devoted men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. In other words, these tongues, they were speaking, and everyone that came from these different countries spoke different languages, but they were all hearing the same exact thing as the apostles preached and declared the good news. Let me just say this. The good news first went out from the church, not in Hebrew. It went out in every language as a testimony that the gospel is to go to the nations. Now turn to Acts 2, verse 41. Verse 41 says this, So those who received his word, this is Peter's word, he preached, he shared the the gospel, this was the gospel. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls in one day. One day, megachurch, 3,000 souls. You know what this is? A great harvest of souls. Jesus was the first fruits. Right? 50 days earlier, Jesus was the first fruits. There was a 120 believers from that that followed Jesus, and within one day, 3,000. Look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This harvest was growing. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. It says this in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The harvest is still coming in. It's still growing. Turn to Acts 6, verse 7. Acts 6, verse 7. says this, And and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There's not even a number now. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know what this is? It's the birth of the church. Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest. What, what an appropriate name for the birth of the church. The Feast of Harvest anticipated the birth of the church. Where a great harvest of souls were being raised from the dead. Again, Jesus being the first fruits of a great harvest. And it doesn't stop here. The gospel keeps going. In fact, it keeps going across the whole world to the nations, right? To the ends of the earth. We see the second half of the book of Acts, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Paul takes the gospel to the nations. In fact, the gospel continues to bring in a great harvest as we send our own CCWs, what we call missionaries here, 
to the nations. Again, all these Old Testament festivals, right, the law itself anticipated a great harvest. The gospel going to the nations, salvation coming to not just Israel, but also to the nations. So this is just a great place to end this morning. Just turn with me one more place. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Because these festivals pointed Israel to the gospel, to Jesus, to this great harvest, the church. But as we study them, they point us forward to the end. Verse 9 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. It's a great harvest. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages or tongues. Same exact word that's used in Acts 2, by the way. People speaking different languages all coming together, right? At the end times, all saved, all God's people, right? A great harvest, the feast of harvest. Standing before the throne and before the what? The Lamb. Lamb that was slain, that God's wrath passed over us because of the sacrifice the Lamb made on our behalf, the Passover celebration, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, clothed in white robes, meaning declared righteous, and and when we get to heaven, when we get to this point, we'll actually be righteous, we'll be glorified. Completely, in other words, unleavened by sin. The feast of unleavened bread with palm branches in our hands, in their hands. Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This great multitude, this great harvest, the church will spend eternity in God's Sabbath rest worshiping the God who sits on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. Listen, the law in Exodus 23 was preparing Israel for a greater salvation that was to come for the Messiah, for the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, our Father, God, I come humbly, Lord, to your word. Each week as we dive in deeply, Lord, I feel like I see so much interconnected, so much that's just perfectly in line, Lord. God, I pray this morning anything, Lord, that we walk away in awe, just how perfectly sovereign you are, and how in your providence, Lord, 
you set up all these festivals that line up perfectly to Jesus' death, resurrection, to the birth of the church, and to the Sabbath rest, Lord, that we will have in eternity. God, be with us as a church. Let us never stop being amazed at your goodness, your grace, and your word. In your son's name, amen.